Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of, to the book of Mark. Um, you know, we call ourselves disciples. We, we've talked about this, and we looked at it, and, and the book of Acts and everything. To be a follower of Jesus, it's like, what does that mean? What does that look like? What's it supposed to look like? And, and as we move through or into our section, we find something that's very odd. Because Israel has been called into the wilderness. We talked about this last week. Because the messenger has finally come to prepare the highway. Remember us talking about this? To prepare the highway for the coming of God. He's finally coming back into our world. His presence will be here once again. And John is there preparing the people and he's proclaiming a baptism of of, um, of repentance and for forgiveness of sins. And he says, listen, the one that's coming, he's mightier than I. And maybe we get in our minds, you know, this, this somebody riding in on a white horse and white garment and, and, and they, this just, but that's not what we find. Jesus is not what we inspect, expect. Jesus is not what the Jews envisioned. And that's why it's so important for us to come to these texts and, and not just read through them, but to absorb them. Because the writer is telling us something that a lot of times we don't get if we don't look at it harder. And so he comes in chapter 1. Let's just, let's just read. So remember, this one, he's coming down the highway, and finally the one steps on the heavenly highway. You ready? Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open. And the spirit descending like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now if you've never read this story before, be honest. Is this the way you thought the whole thing was going to go down? Those who were being baptized, they come out to John who's preparing the highway. And, and this is for repentance. This is for the forgiveness of sins. And so they're coming out there. And, and, and then Jesus comes out and he says to John, John, baptize me. And it's like, wait a second. Didn't you just say, we saw this last week. Didn't he just say, the one who's coming is mightier than I. And he's going to come with a greater baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus comes to him, and he says, I want you to baptize me. John had said last week, the one coming not only is mightier, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And yet this is the one who comes down the highway and says, John, baptize me. Listen, as a minister, or even as a human being, as a Christian, when someone comes to me and says, will you baptize me? 
that is one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life. And it's not because of what I do. It's just I'm, I'm getting to come involved in what God is already doing here. And it's like, man, this is just... He's not, he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, but Jesus says, but I want you to baptize me. Jesus does not come in royal pomp, folks. He does not come in a parade. He comes down this highway and he comes along. Now, Mark is not belittling Jesus. We need to understand that. He wants us to pay very close attention to the details. And one of the details that he has just given here is that the skies are torn open. Listen, Mark uses something that Matthew and Luke doesn't use. It just says opened. But here we see something um, that is different. We see that it is ripped open. Now, I want to illustrate to you why that's such a big deal, okay? Um, Adam, go, go to that door. The, the, not the, don't exit. The one on the left. All right, there's a key. You know where the key is? All right, open the door. And then just stand there. Just open it. That's cracked. All right, open it. Open it. All right. We'll let our visitors see all our junk back there. All right, so I want someone else come up. Come here, Paul. All right, turn towards him. I want you to rip it. Rip it. Have her how you want to rip it, brother. All right, now, that's being torn, ripped. That's being opened. Adam, put it back the way it was. Okay, you can sit down. Paul, I need you to put that back the way it was. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's the closest. You're gonna need you're gonna need some tape. Yeah. Some glue. You can keep that if you want. All right. You Thank sit you. Down. Listen, when something's opened, it can be closed. Right? We just demonstrated that. It can go back to its its form. When something is ripped, you take a clothing and and you rip it. You can't put it back into its fibers. What Mark says here is that when Jesus came, he ripped the heavens. It's like he, it's like he says, I ripped the doors, the hinges off of the doors of heaven. And we talked about this in, in class this morning. There's only one other time that Mark uses this word for torn. And it's at Matthew 15, at his death. The curtain of the temple. It is ripped. It is torn from top to bottom. And both of these have to do with Jesus. Both of these have to do with the presence of God. One of those has to do with God's presence coming into the world. The heavens have been opened and God finally comes down the heavenly highway as Isaiah spoke. And this other one, we see that, that the temple, uh, the, the, it was... It was open in the, in the Holy of Holies. Folks, people couldn't go back there. Only the high priest. Once a year. And, and, and he, was, he had to be very cautious. It was, it, was not, it was not a healthy thing to want to do. 
And what we're seeing here is because you were not allowed in there. That's where the presence of God was. Even though the ark at this time was gone, it was lost. But he's, what he's saying here is that we now can come into the presence of God and there is no more barriers. It's been ripped. It hasn't been opened to be closed later. It has been rend, rended open. This is such a big thing. It is the actual presence of God. And so what it goes on to say in our text is that the Holy Spirit descends, right? And it says that he uh, descends. He literally, if you look at it in the intensity of the Greek, he says, it says the Spirit literally went into Jesus. And it is a hyperlink. We talked about this in class to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. As the Spirit is there hovering over the waters ready to create life. So here is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready to bring new creation, new life. And finally, the Father speaks, right? He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this whole idea, we looked in class and we talked about Psalm chapter 2. Oh man, such a powerful text. It's saying, listen, this is a prophecy that Jesus is the chosen, the anointed. He is the king. The one that God has chosen. God's representative. But ironically, this, in, this whole, you know, enthronement thing that's happening here, it was private. And you're going to see this as we go through Mark. It's like Jesus is showing himself to be God. He is king. He is the Messiah. And all the way he does this. Shh. Don't tell anybody though. And here we see that only he is being able to see. Now later on, the father's going to say this again about the son. And this time, it's at the transfiguration. And he only allows Peter, James, and John. They're the only ones to come. The other apostles are not invited. And he, they see this, they hear this, and when he comes down, he tells them on their way down, listen, shh, don't tell what you've seen. Not until after the resurrection. He will be held as the king of the Jews but in a mocking way. They had no idea the actions that were happening right here at Jesus' baptism. And the great enthronement of the king is going to come in a most unexpected way. But right now, there's no fireworks. There are no parades. There's not a group of people who are standing on the shore and singing and clapping and celebrating with the one who has been baptized. But rest assured, the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. Well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a moment. We mentioned back in verse 8 last week, and John says, the one who's coming, he brings a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we can partake in this baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had to die and resurrect and ascend into heaven. 
And we see this in Acts chapter 2, and finally the Spirit of God comes. The Spirit is sent, if you read Acts chapter 2. And now we see that when we're baptized, and we are baptized in His name, something happens. We now, as we come in repentance, as we come in trust, we, we bear his name, and we too have been washed. And again, the heavens are ripped open, and God's spirit now descends, and he dwells in us, not around us, in us. And God looks at us and he says, you are my child. You are my beloved son. N.T. Wright says we should take that and we should insert our own name. Our own name. Here he says, Peyton, you're my beloved son. He says, Helen, you're my beloved daughter. Jeremy, you're my beloved son. Stephanie, you're my beloved daughter. I want you to just, just sit with this for just a second. And I want you to just look at this, insert your own name into this and listen to it. And I want you... Those of you who, who have been baptized, I want you to remember your baptism as you say this to yourself. Just take a few seconds to do that. Paul says, and because you are sons, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And notice what he cries out from within us. Abba, Father. Well, we're not finished. Spirit sure isn't finished. So we go back into our text. Notice verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the animals and the angels were ministering to him. Something interesting is, has happened here after Jesus' baptism. The spirit that is now dwelling in him, it drives him. Mark, Mark uses a word this, that Matthew and Luke doesn't use. It, it drives him into the wilderness. Now, the question is, why? Why is he being driven into the wilderness? It's to be tempted. Or as we talked about in class, it is, it is a time of testing. Listen, Mark... And we really, we really poured this out in class. Mark wants us to see the exodus. This is the exodus that they had all been waiting for. The Jews were expecting a second exodus to come out in the wilderness. We saw that in Isaiah 40, verse 3. There's going to be a messenger. He's going to come, and, and we're building this highway and everything else. And he, it's going to be greater than the first exodus. Because Jesus represents Israel. When he passes through the waters of the Red Sea, if you will. 
And God leads Israel out to be tested. Remember that, right? How many years was Israel tested? Anybody? 40 years. How long had Jesus been tested? 40 days. Folks, these are not coincidences. These are not coincidences. Listen, you know what Mark is doing? It's exactly what we talked about last week. He is, he is reenacting their movies. This was their stories. This was their narratives. But Jesus does what Israel failed to do. He goes into the wilderness and he passes the test. Folks, this is so important for Jesus to go there. Because if he doesn't, it's up to us. And how many times have we seen as a church, as we've been reading through the Old Testament this year, I mean, we've just seen this over and over again. Israel fails. A new generation rises up. Israel fails. The flood destroys the earth. The people fail. And finally one comes, and he passes the test. He enters into the ranks of humanity. Folks, this is why Jesus came to be baptized. He doesn't be, he's not here to be baptized because he needs to repent of sins. He's not there because he needs forgiveness of sins. He's there to identify with Israel. That he's going to pass through the waters. He's going to live their story of Exodus. And he's going to go out into the wilderness and prove that he is the one who has come to save humanity. And Satan's going to continue to hound him even after, after this great temptation. But the ultimate victory... It was coming. Now, if you understand this narrative, you understand that your baptism is a glorious moment. Listen, you've got to see this. It's pointing out baptism. And those who are thinking about baptism, I want you to think about what's happening here with Jesus. We're supposed to see this and to see that this is a glorious moment. I remember my baptism like it was yesterday. It's been over 30 years. Maywood Christian Camp. I remember what part of the water we went into. I remember the person who baptized me. I remember people I had conversations with right after. I remember that day because you know what? I think we're supposed to remember. But I also remember something from that day, and I'll, be, I'll confess it to you. I thought, when I came up out of the waters, and I remember talking to someone about this, I remember thinking, I wish I could die right now. Anybody else think that? I wish I could die right now. Because, you know what, this is going to, this way, I, I know I'm in. Folks, that is not what baptism's about. And, and don't get me wrong, <laughs> we don't fear death. We don't fear death as we come out of those waters. But we are meant to pass through the waters and go into the wilderness. We are supposed to have our time of testing. To see what we're made of. To see if we truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if we are a part of Jesus' baptism, what we're a part of is the Spirit of God in us. Empowering us. 
And we know that whatever tests we have out in the wilderness, that we're not abandoned. Sometimes we as Christians, we feel like, you know what, you know, I feel like I'm going through this alone. And we're not. In fact, if you look at the text, what does it say? It says that the angels ministered to Jesus. The angels ministered to Jesus while he's in the wilderness. Now, folks, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't, I've studied angels over the years. And, and I'll be I don't know a lot about them. There, there's, there's a lot of mystery with these, these creatures. But here's what I do believe. I believe that angels minister to those who are God's children. There we go. Hebrews 1.14, what does it say? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The spirit, right? So they are involved in spiritual warfare. What does that entail? I don't always know. But I know from the book of Daniel, there's a lot of things going on in the nations that we don't even see and we don't even understand. And, and this, this wilderness wandering that we have, listen, it is a, there is a battle that's happening and it is a spiritual one. What does Paul tell us? He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not what we wrestle against. But against the rulers, listen to that, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But because of Christ's victory, I do not fear the wilderness. We follow Jesus into the wilderness so we too can resist Satan. And the only way we can resist Satan is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is in us. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You've got to see this. Oh, this is so good. I tell you all the time, this is not two books. This is one book. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And you, you tell me how the New Testament writers thought in these terms. All right, so, so we look here in verses 1 and 2. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we... And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All right, you see this. And so what he's saying here is just as baptism symbolizes us being baptized in Christ, we come through Jesus. He's saying that Israel's salvation from Egypt, that's what he's talking about, Egypt, they came through a baptism that came through Moses. And he's speaking about going through the waters. And he goes on to describe Israel's journey. And what he says as he keeps going is, don't be like Israel. Don't be like these people we've been reading about as a church. And he says, we don't have to be like them. And the reason is because we have something they didn't. And that is an empowerment. 
of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The ability to overcome, folks, get this. The ability to overcome is not within ourselves. We're not, we don't have that power, okay? Paul uses Israel's exodus as a deliverance from, uh, from slavery in Egypt. So deliverance should be on the reader's mind when he comes here. And notice what he says. He will provide a way of escape. Listen, all right, get this in the mind. He's saying he's going to provide an exodus. That's what he says here. But the Exodus narrative also speaks to what we can expect. What can we expect? The wilderness. We can expect trying times that will test our faith. And when people were out there in the wilderness, you know what they did? They grumbled. Paul talks about this. And you know why they grumbled? Because the wilderness is difficult. It just is. Think about your own testings. When you're going through these certain testings in your life, and you may not even realize that's what they are, but you're going through these difficult times in your life, you really are not feeling and seeing them as a good thing until there's deliverance. And then we can look back and we say, oh man, look what God is doing. Look what God has done. But when we're in the midst of it, we don't quite feel that way. I can think of many examples in my own life in ministry where I'm just, I'm being tested. I know I am. And, and, and I pray. I remember being at one place and I, do, I prayed for an entire year. I've told you all about this before. God, get me out of here. And he did. And he took me to the best place I'd ever been at that point in ministry. And I look back and I see how all these things, just all these the dominoes just started to fall. I didn't see them quite, at, but at the end, I, was, I see it. I see it. I, you know, I'm going through wilderness now with my back. Try not to complain about it because the fact of the matter is, I know some of your wildernesses. I know there's people in here that, that, that's going through or going through cancer treatments right now. We've got people who are not in this room right now because they're in Houston. Liz Rakes, Sandy Harrelson, Tom had already done this. Listen, we got people that have gone through some stuff. There are people that are struggling. They're struggling with their marriages. They're struggling with their children. There are people who are probably struggling from financial setback they never saw coming. Maybe there's somebody who's trying to overcome some kind of addiction in their life and they are in the wilderness. And it's in these extreme moments that our faith is tested. The idea is that there is a way of escape. That he provides an exodus. But in order for us to happen, listen, when we're in the wilderness, we have to trust God. 
Let me say something about our baptism. Our baptism is not going to make our lives glorious. Don't get me wrong. It is a moment of rejoicing. It really is. But we are told that we are to walk in the Spirit. And we are not to walk in the desires of the flesh. That we are to be led by the Spirit. Listen, that's Scripture. You be led by the Spirit. Because if we rely on our own power, if we think that it's within ourselves, we are going to fail. And we're going to turn it into something rather than faith, we're going to turn it into rules. But what does it mean to walk and be led by the Spirit? We hear this sometimes. It's a great question. One thing that the Scriptures tell us is that we can have this fellowship, this communion with the Spirit of God. But we also realize that we can quench the Spirit. That means that we can resist the working of God in our lives. Resist His work in us and among us, as Acts chapter 7 mentions. In fact, we can even deny the indwelling Spirit of God. We may affirm His work in the Word, and it's truth. But at the same time, we deny the inner guidance of God. And that's just false beliefs. The scriptures use a megaphone. It calls out from both testaments, calling out to us that the Spirit will come and the Spirit has come. And He's not just going to live around us. He's not going to just give us more rules. He's going to give us the Spirit. But we've got to work in cooperation with the Spirit, and we've got to stop resisting it. And in order for that to happen, we've got to stop rebelling against God. You say, well, I'm trying to follow God the best way I can through His Word. Listen, if you're resisting the Spirit and His inner working, you're resisting God. I'm sorry. The Spirit bears witness of our own human spirit that we are children of God. I don't know about you. I need that sometimes. You say, yeah, come on. You're the preacher. Uh-huh. Yeah. Listen, we, we bear a lot. You know, we have a very serious responsibility. I sometimes need to know that, that I'm God's child. And I need this because, listen, if I'm continually worried, if I'm saved or not, I am resisting, I am quenching the spirit of God's work in me. Just am. It's man, not God, who creates fear. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees. What do they do? They take God's word and then they just add more laws on top of those laws. People are afraid to do anything. And what do we do in our culture? We do the same thing. We take things that God's word says, and then we come up with all these things that, well, listen, you can't do that because, well, I don't have scripture for it, but listen, you can't do that. And we add laws on top of laws of what we think is right and what we think is holy, and what we're doing is we're quenching the spirit. And we believe that the way to God is just by keeping more laws. We have 
made so many opinionated issues into salvation issues, the belief that we're saved on our own goodness rather than God's grace, and we create these laws on top of laws, believing perfect obedience is the way that we earn our way to God. And I'm going to tell you this right out straight. That is false doctrine. Read Ephesians. The belief that, listen, Jesus is perfect, not us. And while the Spirit comes upon us and he works in us, we await the perfection. We await for that time of incorruption. Until then, God does not require perfection. He requires faith. He requires trust. Do I trust God or am I trusting myself to obey perfectly? Well, does that mean we should? No, but if you're trusting that, you're quenching the spirit. I'm, t I'm sorry, you just are. As we grow in our faith, what does he, listen, what does Paul say about the Spirit? Think of the metaphor that he gives in Galatians chapter 5. He says, it's a fruit. How does fruit happen? Does it just, wow, it's all mature. It is a process. It has to be cultivated. It has to be worked. It has to be watered. The wilderness is a place of growth, folks. It's a place of growth for the fruit. I want to show you something from James, and I think the teenagers just finished studying James. But listen to this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith... Oh, there it is. Look at that. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that word steadfastness means the ability to endure under difficult circumstances. Okay, so he says our faith it produces this. And then he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you, watch this, may be perfect and complete. May be. Not that you are. But the time in the wilderness matures us. Because we have to rely and trust in God and not upon ourselves. Do you see it? Trials are unwelcome. They're unexpected experiences and they lead to spiritual maturity. And part of that maturity, folks, is trusting God. Believing that I can face anything because I know that the power and the provision is going to be made for a way of escape. And I don't feel like it when I'm in the midst of the wilderness. But I'm entrusting God that he's bringing me to where I need to be. Folks, this is just one aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pass through the supernatural waters of God. And by his name, something happens as we emerge on the other side. And the heavens are opened. And the Spirit of God comes in us. 
And we are not meant to sit by the river and bask in our salvation. We come out on the other side to go into the wilderness because now we have been equipped. Trust God. Believe in the Spirit of God that dwells in you and continue to hear His voice. If we can help you in any way this morning, whether it's you're ready to pass through the waters yourself or whether it's something that, you know, you're going through the wilderness. Listen, God does not intend for us to go through the wilderness by ourselves. He put us in community. Let us pray with you and for you because we believe in this God. He is a great and a powerful God and we are so thankful to Jesus Christ who went through the waters before us so that we follow him. If we can help you in any way, come as together we stand and as we sing.